Okay, well, let's turn attention to God's Word today as we have a chance to continue to examine His Word together. And we have been in the midst of a study of 1 Peter, and I want to continue in that study today. We'll be ending the second chapter of 1 Peter. And brothers and sisters, as we get into this again, I never cease to be astounded as we get into the Word of God that this actually is God's words. You know, the God of the universe who spoke the universe into being. Talk about power. His words spoke the universe into being. He said things he wanted us to know. And what we have is what he said. Not what some people think he should have said. It's what he said. And we have the privilege to access it. We have the privilege to study it. And if that wasn't enough... He said, my Holy Spirit who indwells you is my child, if you've come to know Jesus Christ, carries out a ministry within you to help you to understand the things that I've said. All of those things make it sort of always strange to me that people don't spend any time trying to find out what he said. Or it's sort of an extraneous thing. We don't really do that on Sundays. Well, then what else do you do? It's kind of like, you know, I mean, is it, shouldn't that be sort of the central thing you do? But, well, at any rate, 1 Peter chapter 2, picking up our reading today in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd an overseer of your souls. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we have a chance to be in your word this day, would you guide and direct in our time? Through your Spirit's ministry, would you illumine our hearts to the things you've taken the time to say, to ensure were written down and made accessible to us? Use your word, Lord, within us to correct our thinking, to transform And we'll give you praise and thanks as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get into this portion of the second chapter of 1 Peter, as you remember, we've been talking about the fact that God has called us as sojourners and exiles into a countercultural lifestyle. That we're not supposed to be fitting the culture that he has sovereignly placed us in. Uh, We're not to be conformed to it. But we are to be living within it. We are to be lights in the darkness. And we've been looking at some of the cultural contrasts that God intends to be demonstrated in the life of his redeemed children. We talked about abstaining from the passions of the flesh. We talked about honorable conduct and good deeds. We talked about being subject to governing authorities. We talked about showing honor and respect to all people. We talked about being subject to work authorities. Uh, those were five of these countercultural things that we've talked about. Last week, we were looking at the sixth of them that were commanded to be a people who endure unjust treatment. That the fact of the matter is, he's left us in a fallen world. 
And in that fallen world, authorities of all sorts, whether they are governmental, whether they are work world things, or whether they're even family related, there's going to be twisted authorities, people not dealing with us justly and right. The word unjust is the Greek word skoliois, which we get the word scoliosis from, means twisted, as in a twisted spine. The fact is, God says, I want you to understand, there's a lot of crooked and bent people out there. And they're going to deal with you in crooked and bent ways. You ought to always be astounded when that doesn't happen, not when it does. Because that is the nature of life in a fallen world. The world is filled with people in authority places who are twisted. He says, I want you as my child to be enduring unjust treatment. But then he goes on and he says, this won't happen. This won't be able to be carried out, whatever your motive might be. It won't be able to be carried out unless you're mindful of God, was the phrase we looked at last time. What does that mean? It means, number one, as Romans 13 puts it, there aren't any authorities there that God didn't put there. It means he's not always necessarily pleased with what they're doing, but they're in those positions because God put them there and he hadn't yet taken them out of there. So all authorities are there because God has permitted it for whatever reasons. Secondly, we talked in 2 Timothy chapter 4, as Paul talks about his own sufferings, he says, everybody abandoned me, but the Lord stood by me. So even in the face of crooked and bent people uh, causing unjustified suffering in our lives, the Lord stands beside us. Even if we're the only ones left, he stands beside us and will give us enablement. And then finally, he reminded us last week that God uses the unjust situation Uh, So we remember those things, that God put them there for whatever reason. He didn't choose my, he didn't consult with me about the reason, only telling me he put them there for some reason. That uh, he said, I'll give you the power to face it and understand that I use even twisted situations for my purposes. And he ends it all, which bridges us into today, by saying, uh, I've actually made your calling to endure unjust treatment. In fact, not only is it your calling, but I look at you if you're enduring the unjust treatment, and I say that's a gracious thing. That's a good thing. Uh, Not that the unjust treatment is good, but how you're responding to it is good and gracious. But of course, any gracious redemptive benefit of suffering is gone if we deserve the suffering. And so he adds that little proviso there if you know none of this holds true if you've actually done something that you should have been just you should have been suffering as a result of well today uh, in verses 21 to 25 the second chapter ends by examining christ in light of this issue of enduring unjust treatment living in a twisted bent world and knowing doing that we are going to be negatively influenced by people at all kinds of levels, he says, I want you to look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you. He is the perfect example of what enduring unjustified treatment is all about. Let's begin looking at these verses with this statement of fact. Jesus Christ was perfect in his dealings with everybody. The Lord Jesus Christ was 100% righteous and holy 
and proper in everything he did. Now, what does that mean? It means a lot of things theologically, but practically, here's what it means in light of the theme. There was never a time when he suffered justly. Everything he encountered was unjust suffering. You follow? His whole life. I mean, he never deserved any of the bad treatment, the twisted treatment that he got. You know, even at my best and somebody says, well, that's not very high, Gary. Well, maybe not, but even at my best, I always have this suspicion. I wonder, maybe I caused a little of this. You know, maybe it's not, maybe it's not, it, it's twisted, but maybe I've twisted a little bit, caused it. You know, you're always aware of your own frailty. The fact is, Paul put it, that I still have a ways to press on to be who God wants me to be. That never happened to Jesus. He was always perfect. So everything that happened was undeserved to him when he had to suffer for it. He never deserved any bad treatment. The other thing that we can get from that, by the way, is that the Savior of my soul knows exactly, penetratingly, what it means to be unjustly treated. You've been unjustly treated this week? or Is it still fresh in your mind when you got an unjust treatment from somebody? Jesus knows exactly that feeling. You say, well, I didn't deserve that response. Hmm? No. Isn't it good that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, as Hebrews puts it? He knows exactly what this is all about. I don't have to inform him about these feelings I have inside of hurt because I'm being unjustly twisted, treated in that way. He knows exactly those feelings. So I can almost, you can almost picture it in your mind, the Lord Jesus there, and he says, I know, I know. Happened to me too, <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, that's helpful, I think, in this whole context. We have one who can sympathize with us in these very important things. And he says, I sympathize with you. Here's what I did in response to it, which is supposed to be the example for you. This is what you're supposed to do in response to it also. And he gives four things here that, uh, that are the picture of how Jesus responded to the scoliosis, the twisted, unjust treatment. Number one, he says he left us an example so that we would follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin. Be determined to continue to live a righteous life. Make it your goal, going back to the preceding verses that I had been referencing, to not cause your own suffering. I mean, make, make, that's a good goal. In other words, I, I want to act in such a way that any suffering I get, I don't deserve. Now, will you do that perfectly? No. But hopefully we'll grow to do that more. So he says, make it a goal not to commit that sin. Don't do something that deserves the penalty. If we're living a holy life, then we're able to face unjust, twisted treatment in a way different than we would otherwise. And by the way, also keeping with that, don't stop being righteous when you start to encounter the twisted treatment. What am I talking about? Well, the common thing that can happen in all of us is we're trying to do right, other people aren't doing right, and then the people that aren't doing right unjustly cause us suffering. And the psalmist knew that, Psalm 73 after recounting all of that and the struggle he was having in Psalm 73, the psalmist says, All in vain 
have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. In other words, it's been, why am I even trying? I might just as well stop trying to be right because that hasn't gotten me anywhere. I'm still getting treated in these fashions. Uh, psalmist knew those feelings, and I think those are understood here as well for people who are facing twisted treatment. But then the psalmist goes on in verse 15 of Psalm 73 to say, If I said I will speak thus, in other words, here's what I'm thinking, but if I said, if I'd have said that and actually acted on it, he says, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It's a betrayal of the rest of the generation of God's people if you, in response to twisted treatment, decide righteousness isn't worth it anymore. So there's no sense trying to be right because it doesn't get you anywhere anyway. Uh, It's a betrayal, let alone the Lord. It's a betrayal of the brothers and sisters. And you come before the Lord and say, well, this whole equation would be a whole lot easier if it was just me, you know. Uh, it, uh, and, and my not being right would just impact on me. And God says, well, yeah, I know it would be easier for you in that way. Because then you'd say, this situation's so intolerable, I don't care what happens to me. I'm just going to act in this way. But he says, I want you to understand you'll live in a vacuum. What you do always links to the brothers and sisters in Christ. So number one, make sure when facing twisted treatment, you keep on striving for righteousness, trying to be following the lifestyle pleasing to the Lord, despite the twisted treatment. And then he says, number two, he says, follow my example by keeping close control over your tongue. He says, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. In the face of unjust treatment, watch your tongue. Watch your tongue. The Lord Jesus said, in the face of unjust treatment, there was no deceit in his mouth. The Greek word dolos here is translated deceit. It means to speak in such a way as to trick. Uh, Meaning, the way the Greeks would use that, they're talking, uh, describing someone who twists the truth in order to turn the tables on somebody. In other words, I'll twist the truth because I'm trying to turn the table put it back into their hands. Boy, is that a temptation when you're being unjustly treated. <laughs> and Jesus said, no, no, we, that, that strategy, can't. that's not going to work. I don't want any of this happening. You can't play games with your speech. And let's use con- most contemporary terminology, no spin doctoring on the circumstance, you know, to try to get back at the people who are doing something wrong. No spin doctoring. That's the, that, that is the way not only politics but press operate in our current culture. But God says, that's not how I want my people operating. No spin doctoring. No spin doctoring. You say, pretty tough, Lord. They're treating me bad. They deserve spin doctoring. He says, no, no spin doctoring. And then he also said here, he did not revile in return when he was reviled. Returning abuse for abuse. Refuse the temptation that's there to abuse somebody else in response to their abuse of you. That's what that's about. They treated me this way, they deserve this. Well, on a human level, maybe. But God doesn't give that into your hands. He says, that's not what I want you to do. 
I was thinking of Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 18 in this regard, where it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with people. And you say, well, they, they did evil to me. They deserve some evil. Well, God says, no, I, repay no one evil for evil. <laughs> My part of the light of countercultural living is going to come because you don't do that. And you follow my example. Now, closely in keeping with this is the third part of the pattern that Jesus is setting here. Refuse to use threats to respond to the unjust suffering. He says when he suffered, he didn't threaten. Now, this is a different word, not just in the English, but even in the Greek here. It's a different word than the idea of deceit or reviling. What does threatening mean? Well, the Greek word threaten here means to promise harm on another. Uh, You threaten them, menace them with threatened harm. You do this, it's going to cost you. You do this, I'll do this. You know, the threatening idea. Sometimes that's a temptation when we're facing twisted people. The way we try to keep it in check is say, you do that, you're going to get this, you know. You may take a swing at me, but you're going to get whatever response, you know. Think back to guys. You can think back to your recess days in the school. You know. Yeah, do that. Go ahead and try, but it's going to be, going to be a response you're not going to like. You know. It says something about my childhood, doesn't it? At any rate, that's, that's, that's what that's about, all right? The, uh, you know, you, you respond that way. Uh, God says, no, no, I, that, that, you can't do that. I'm not, you can't use the threat tool which society tries to build into you. You don't use that. Uh, you don't use that. Really, he says, I don't want you acting like Paul did when he was still Saul. What do I mean by that? Well, in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, after the, after the, uh, uh, you know, the martyrdom of Stephen, and of course Paul was central to, Saul at that time was central to all of that, uh, it says, Saul, still breathing out threats, same word in the Greek here, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anybody else belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem where they'd have their just desserts, you know. Threatening. He says, don't act that way. Jesus didn't threaten anybody. You put me on this cross, you're in trouble. I mean, there was none of this stuff that went on. And you say, well, I don't know. I don't think I can be that way. Well, you can't be in your own strength, obviously. That's not going to happen. <laughs> but you can't be any of the things that God calls for you to be in your own strength anyway, can you? And if you think you can, you're only deceiving yourself because what you've settled for is a counterfeit, human-based thing that looks like what God wants us to be. What God really wants us to be is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit enablement. Well, finally, the fourth thing he says, he entrusted himself to the one, he continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. He says, when you're talking about responding to the twisted, to the unjust treatment, he says, entrust the unjust situation and treatment into the Lord's care and vindication. Paradidomai is the Greek word translated in trust here. It means to hand yourself over. Come to God and say, Lord, this, in this messed up, twisted situation I'm living in, I'm handing myself over to you. I'm not going to take it into my own hands. I'm handing myself over to you. 
You got to do it. You got to work with it. I've got to trust you for the power to face it. And I've got to trust you to somehow, in your miraculous fashion, use the unjust, twisted treatment to serve a purpose. You say, well, that's wishful thinking. How can that be true? Well, think of Joseph, Genesis classic example, uh, sold off into slavery by his brothers, lied at even as a slave, and therefore thrown into dungeons in Egypt. Eventually, out of all of those years of, of what would have seemed like disaster, God brought him to the point of, of second in authority within, within all of Egypt. And he makes a comment in Genesis 50, verses 19 and 20, this way. He says, his brothers were, after his father died, they said, okay, now he's going to get even with us. So they were trying to convince him that, you know, be careful. I think, I think Dad wouldn't have wanted you to throw us in prison or whatever. And, uh, and he responds in this way, but Joseph said to them, don't fear, for am I in the place of God? Meaning, God's the one who's been superintending all of this stuff, you know. Am I in the place of God? As for you, the fact of the matter is, you meant evil against me. By the way, every twisted treatment you get, every unjust treatment you get, is intended evil from somebody. It's intended, not inadvertent. It's intended evil from someone. Joseph led of the Lord, understood that even in his own life. And he says, you, you meant it. You meant evil against me. But then he ends up and he says, but God meant it for good to bring about that many of his people would be kept alive as they are to this day. God doesn't expect you to have a Pollyannish view of life to say, well, somebody treated me this way, but oh, it was just a bad day for him. Now they meant evil, generally speaking. Whether they had a good day or a bad day, they were dirty dogs is what it comes down to. That's the truth of it. But God's greater than that. And God can use it. And therefore, what you're supposed to do in the face of it is turn yourself over to him. Paradidomai. I'm just going to hand myself over to you, Lord. I know I can't face this situation anyway. And if I try to take it into my hands, I'm just going to make a royal mess out of it. Uh, I'm just going to trust you about it. I'm going to trust you. Trust in God's ultimate justice on our behalf and determine that you're going to live in the face of temporary unjustified suffering and accusation for as long as he chooses to permit it. Put the vengeance back into his hands. Remember Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. You say, well, I secretly have been hoping to do a little vengeance, Lord. <laughs> you could take away some of my... I really kind of was looking forward to this. And God says, yeah, I know you were. I'd love you anyway, but that's... I know you were. Uh, give it over to me. This, this is not your task. Well, if it's not my task, what's my task? To live counterculturally. That's my task. <laughs> that's my task. That's the whole point of this second chapter. Live counterculturally, empowered by the Spirit of God. So you're a light in the darkness. That's your task. You say, I'd rather have the task of showing some vengeance, Lord. God says, I know you would. But I also know you'd do a terrible job of that. Uh, let's see you do a better job with what I actually called you to do, which is to live counterculturally. 
Because you can't do that except you're drawing on the Holy Spirit's enablement. You can't do that unless you're surrendered to me. And you're going to discover, even if an unjust treatment situation led you to be surrendered before me and draw on my Holy Spirit's enablement, it will twist into a blessing for you because you will grow closer to me. Remember the psalmist said, it was good that I was afflicted because I learned your word. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, it was good that I encountered such suffering I despaired of life because it brought me to the point where I stopped relying on myself and started relying on you. God does those things within us when we rely on him. Well, the chapter closes, the second chapter closes, by speaking a bit to the question of motivation in all of this stuff. He says, listen, you're going to be motivated to do what he's called us to do here by remembering the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Remember that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Number one, keep reminding yourself that the cross was totally unjustified suffering on a human level endured for our sake. We reminded ourselves of that this morning as we shared in the Lord's Supper. It had to be suffered that way to pay for sin. But it wasn't deserved suffering for the Lord Jesus, you see. It was totally undeserved, unjustified. In Acts chapter 10, verses 38 and 40, it says, in, in one of the messages of Paul or Peter, it says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good. And he was healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And were witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day. Now, as he did all these good things, they put him to death because he did, you know, did that stuff. Can you just listen to, can't you just imagine Peter talking and say, you're not going to believe this, but boom, 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 boom. You know, that's, that's what happened. How can we ever be embarrassed talking about Jesus, brothers and sisters? How could we never, how could we ever be embarrassed about it? You know, hey, he did all this, but they put him to death. God raised him on the third day. Uh, that's the one I serve. That's my Savior. That's why I live. Why do you live? Well, I kind of live to play golf or kind of live to get my retirement money together. Pretty, you know, unbalanced, isn't it? It's like, that's not much to live for. (laughs) I live for him. Uh, Acts 13, uh, Paul speaking in this case, verses 28 and 29, it says, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they'd carry out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Uh, But God raised him from the dead. All right, so I remind myself, and you need to remind yourself, my motivation to be countercultural is resting partially on realizing what Jesus did for me, which was all unjustified suffering on his part. You say, well, I'm not willing to have any unjustified suffering in my life. Well, you might just as well ask God to kill you. Because you live in a twisted world. There is no 
place not to be affected by twisted, unjust treatment, except in the presence of the Lord. Well, secondly, he says, remember that Christ died so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. That we might die to sin. He bore his sins on his body. Christ died so we could be healed from the wounds we deserved. Here's the, again, you see it? He was, he didn't have any reason to be punished. His body was whipped and broken. He was put on a cross. He didn't deserve any of that. I deserved it. And yet, because he did that, I'm healed. I'm healed. By his wounds, you've been healed. He died so that I could be healed from the wounds that I actually deserved. It's like Isaiah 53, isn't it? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that was brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord's laid on him the iniquity of us all. What wonderful words. But that's what he's referring to here. His unjustified suffering and wounds healed us and saved us. And he says, remember, now because that's true, you're called to live surrendered, holy, and fruitful lives. This is what he did. This is what you're supposed to do. Live holy, fruitful lives. Die to sin, live to righteousness. Brothers and sisters, the idea which is prevalent, sadly, among Christians in our era, that since I'm saved, it, I can kind of live any way I want, uh, that comes from Satan, not the Scriptures. That's Satan's lie. It's not sound biblical doctrine. I'm not talking about whether you lose your salvation or keep it. That's a different question. I'm just saying the idea that somehow if I'm a redeemed child of God, it no longer really matters that awful much how I'm living. If I am living a complacent life as a believer... If I am living what's called a carnal life in 1 Corinthians 3 sense as a believer, if I am living a self-controlled life instead of a surrendered Romans 12, 1 life, what it proves, if I am truly a believer, is that I am actually not thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what I may say about it. Because I can't possibly be thinking about him and what he has done for me, without being motivated to die to sin and try to and live for righteousness. Be, get involved in the growth as a disciple. Get involved in a life pleasing to him. So I know by default, when somebody's not growing, whatever they may say, they're truly not thinking about the Lord Jesus and what he's done for them. And they could give me a hundred reasons why they're, quote, not growing, All verbal flack. The real issue is, I'm not thinking about Jesus, and when I start to think about it, it makes me feel uncomfortable, and since I'm not willing to change, I'm not going to keep thinking about what he did. That's what that passage means, by the way. 
Gary, that's another uncomfortable part of the Word of God. Yep, yeah, that's true. It is. He also says, I want you to be motivated because you remember the terrible truth about yourself in your past. He says, remember? You were straying like sheep. It isn't like I'm looking out over the congregation and a couple of you, <laughs> you, were, you were wandering sheep, straying. Thankfully, the majority of you didn't and you just always wanted to follow the Lord Jesus. All of us were wandering sheep. All of us had gone astray, as Isaiah 53 puts it. The terrible truth about us is each one of us deserved death, judgment, and eternal separation from God because we knowingly and persistently broke the greatest commandment all of our life, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of us deserved that. We were all straying like sheep. As Ephesians 2 puts it, as a result, all of us were helpless and hopeless without God in this world. That's why Ephesians 2 makes it such, such a strong statement. That was the truth of everybody. I'm motivated to grow if I keep reminding myself the terrible truth of what I was, apart from the Lord Jesus. Human tendency is to say, well, when I'm remembering what I was, what I remember is I wasn't as bad as that guy. No, that's, that's not the picture. <laughs> remember what was true about you and the Lord. We were all sheep. It was only the cross that enabled us to return to the Lord. Nothing less than that. Wasn't turning over any new leaves. Wasn't dropping a gift in the offering box. It was coming back to the Lord Jesus. That's what it was about. That's the only thing that changed the equation, so to speak, of life. So spend some time remembering the terrible truth about your own past. Not because... God wants us unsettled and uncertain that he's really forgiven us in the Lord Jesus. Just as the note of realism to say, let's not forget who you were. Because if you forget who you were, you don't really understand who you are in the Lord Jesus. And therefore, he says, not only do I want you to remember the terrible truth about your past, I want you to remember the amazing truth about your present and your future. He says, now you've returned to the shepherd and the one who's the overseer of your soul. You are straying sheep, lost, hopeless, helpless. But when you responded to the gospel, you now have a shepherd. People like to think, well, God's the shepherd of humanity. Baloney. The Old Testament, New Testament does not say that. He's the shepherd of his people. He's the God of the universe for everybody, of course, the creator. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I see people use that psalm a lot. I've seen lots of funerals over the years, my friends. Not all that I officiate at, but I've been a lot. And I see people looking for comfort in reading things like Psalm 23. And I'm thinking, the person that's dead here, this isn't about them because he was not their shepherd. They were still lost. They rejected the shepherd. They want to believe that's true about God, that he's their shepherd anyway. The Bible says and that's not true. Think of how John 10, verses 14 and 15 put it, Jesus speaking, and he says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for those sheep. 
I know my own. You mean there's some for whom he's not the good shepherd? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Because they reject him being the shepherd. You follow it? He says, listen, remind yourself, you have a shepherd. We have a shepherd now who sticks with us even in the midst of the unjust suffering. Remember the 2 Timothy 4? Everybody else abandoned me. The Lord stood by me in the midst of it. That's a wonderful truth about the present. The truth about the past, I was a mess, I was lost. That's end of story. Wonderful truth about the present, I'm saved. And I have a shepherd now watching over me. More than that, he says, you have an overseer of your soul. Greek word is episkopos. Get the word episcopal from that. Literally in the Greek means one who keeps an eye over. I like the fact that as a redeemed child of God, I got one overseeing my unfolding life. They're keeping an eye on me. Episcopos. I want that. You say, well, aren't there times you'd like that not to be true? Kind of like to do kind of something you wanted and didn't want Jesus seeing it? Well, of course, because we're still stumbling saints. And we need to grow. But the fact of the matter is, he never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's always overseeing us. He oversees what we wish he didn't see. But he's overseeing us as we face what we wish we didn't have to face. He's the overseer of our soul. And he promises as your overseer and your shepherd, to provide all the personal care and protection we need. Nothing will happen in my life outside the control of our good shepherd and overseer of my soul. And therefore, he says, turn yourself over to me for that reason. Rest in me. Trust in me. So there's the point for us. Will you choose to entrust yourself to God's care or choose to attack those who cause you unjust suffering in this life? Your choice is to be an attacker for the rest of your days in this world or to be a truster. There's no middle ground between those things. God says you have to make choices about it. Isn't it interesting he won't force us to do that? He says you want to be an attacker? (laughs) I shake my head at you, but go. See where it gets you. It doesn't get you anywhere. Say, well, he's got anything... Less convicting for us uh, next time as we turn to the third chapter. Yeah, because uh, really he's, he's giving us in the third chapter, starts it out by giving us the seventh cultural contrast. What? Another one? Uh, yeah. He gives us a cultural contrast between biblical redeemed marriage and the world's understanding of marriage. Because he begins in the third chapter talking about the wife and the husband, and how he wants us living in the framework of marriage that brings a light in the midst of the darkness. I don't know about you, but I've already been doing prep on that, and I feel a little bloodied uh, as I do that. (laughs) So I suspect there might be a little of that, but but not because I'm trying to cause it. It's just like you look at that and you say, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. God says, yeah. Keep on pressing on, boy. So that's my message to you. Keep on pressing on, boy and girl. Keep pressing on. Philippians 3. Forget what lies behind. See where he wants us to be. Press on. He's got purposes in all of it.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to be in your word. We thank you that you're a God who has spoken and not stuttered. And that we can understand the things that you've said and been made clear about them through the working of your spirit. And would you work within us that we would ever be growing, ever more reflecting the Savior of our soul, our shepherd and our overseer. And that we, as a result, would be pleasing to you, useful to you in reaching even those people we pray about who don't know you. And we'll give you thanks as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.